Are you on speaker view, Lewis? I just press record. You kill me. Yeah, I'm on speaker view. <laughs> I, can, I can cut this bit. Don't worry. Hi, welcome to another episode of Infinite Leaders Live. Our why is simple: to be better educators and to be better humans. We want to support and encourage infinite learning at all levels, regardless of rank, role, and responsibility. And hopefully, people are willing to listen, to learn, and also to share the knowledge they hear on our podcast. I'm joined as ever by Alan from sunny England. How are you doing, Alan? Yeah, thanks, Lewis. All good. And uh, really enjoyed the shows we've been doing recently. And I had to listen back to them. And I've had much joy from listening to them and making notes. We will continue to, to focus on the things you don't get taught at university or on any courses. Real life lessons from real life people with real life experience. Yeah, and we're over 20 episodes in now. and We've learned loads from, from episode one. And, and thanks to everybody who's providing feedback, reviews, who's clicking subscribe and who's generally just trying to help us get better. We do practice what we preach, and, and we, we, as I've said, we've learned lots and applied a lot of that learning over the last couple of months. Um, if you do hear mistakes as we go through, that's because we record live, uh, and if you do want to leave feedback with us, you can find us on Twitter. Our, all our episodes are on YouTube, IGTV, uh, and also popular podcast platforms, and you can find more at theinfinitelearners.com. So, Alan, let's get stuck in. If you can introduce our guest today. Yeah, get your pens and paper ready, guys. There's going to be some absolute gems of wisdom coming out of the show today. Uh, John O'Sullivan is the author of three books, Is It Wise to Specialise, Changing the Game, and Every Moment Matters. As the founder of the Changing the Game project, he has positively influenced thousands of educational establishments, sports teams, coaches, and parents to bring sport back to its roots of being fun, engaging, and child-friendly. He's certainly been inspirational in my own journey as a leader in the, in the past 10 years, and we're absolutely delighted to have him on the show. Um, for those that haven't read your books, John, just tell us a little bit about the origins of the Changing the Game project. Sure, then. Thank you both for having me on. It's great to, great to chat. We, we almost forgot to hit record today. We were chatting <laughs> <laughs> off camera beforehand, and we're like, wait, we got to hit record and start. Um, so yeah, this is going to be great. Um, so... You know, I had been, I grew up in New York and I was uh, a, a typical, I think, for my generation, multi-sport kid who, you know, did lots of organized sports and did lots of, you know, probably even more unorganized sport um, and and fell in love with football or, or soccer, ended up playing that on the collegiate level, ended up playing uh, professionally for a little while and was, had some bad injuries that finally caught up to me. And so I got into coaching and I really fell in love with coaching and the ability to influence uh, children, especially, but I worked on the university level. I worked with older kids. So I've worked with kids, every, you know, people everywhere from age five to, you know, you know, 30 and um, for God, almost 30 years now, but about, you know, eight, nine years ago, I was really starting to get fed up and burnt out with, what I thought was the status quo of sports in the U S and this sort of race to get seen and this race to find the scholarship and uh, all this pressure on younger and younger kids, all these extra commitments on younger and younger kids, the high cost in, in a sport like, like football, where, I mean, you just kind of need like a round thing in a sort of flat place and you can play. And yet we're figuring out ways to make it cost thousands of dollars. And so, I stepped away from my full-time coaching and directorship role with an organization that had about, you know, 1200 kids in it and wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then um, a few things happened and I decided to write this first book called changing the game where I kind of collected a lot of my thoughts and experiences and then did a bunch of the research and probably much like your guys podcast, like there's doing the research and I'm like, why didn't anyone teach me this when I did my coaching badges? Why didn't I learn some of this stuff before? This would have been really helpful to know. Uh, why didn't anyone ever teach me this as a parent? My kids were, you know, four and five at that point. And so that was the journey that I that I went on. And like you mentioned, I, I did another sort of smaller book just on, you know, the science around early sports specialization at that time a couple of years ago. And that's evolved a lot since. And then, um, and then uh, just in December of 2019, released a book for coaches called Every Moment Matters, uh, which was really uh, 150 podcast interviews that I'd done with leading coaches and sports scientists and skill acquisition people. And 
And much like you guys say in your intro, like, you know, what's everything that we probably should learn in coaching education that we don't, um, that I think really makes a far bigger difference. And so, uh, yeah, so here we, here we are today and, um, all of our lives have changed because of COVID. And so usually I'd be on the road three weeks a month right now, speaking and teaching and working. And uh, instead I'm just inhaling two packs of wildfire smoke a day <laughs> here in Oregon. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're delighted that you, uh, you, you were in the house long enough to speak to us, John, uh, <laughs> but, but hope you're keeping safe in there and, and, and regards to, to your family and friends with the, with the problems that are on in Oregon. Um, Thanks man. You mentioned there about sport and bringing it back to the basics of, of the reasons why people do it, trying to get rid of this status quo and the hamster wheel feeling of, of just keeping up with the next thing and, and trying to compete. Can you break that down for us a bit? What What is it that makes sport so special and what is it that sometimes we lose sight of? Well, I think one of the biggest myths that we are struggling to overcome and uh, I had a long conversation about this with my friend Jay Coakley, who's a very well-known sports sociologist. And um, <clears throat> it's around this idea that sport is fundamentally good, right? And, and this is not true. Like sport is not fundamentally good or fundamentally bad. Sport is, it just is. But sport in the hands of intentional coaches and organizers can be an incredible force for good and sport in the wrong hands as we all know can be an incredible force for terrible outcomes and so i think one of the most important things that we have to overcome is that people sign their children up for sport under this false assumption that well because i signed them up for this this is going to be a good thing and we hope it is but we need to do the research and we need to hold our organizations accountable for providing a good sport experience. And, and the, these are the type of things that I'm really trying to get people to understand and then um, to be intentional about um, who, you know, where do we sign up? Why do we choose this coach or this program? Um, and and what, what are we committing to? Do we know that ahead of time? And is that organization you know, following what they say they're going to deliver. Because if they are, then sport can be this incredible force for not only, you know, teaching movement and, and we all know, and I'm sure you've talked on this podcast many times, right? All the positive outcomes for active children, right? They do better in school, one-tenth the obesity rate, less likely to do drugs, more likely to go on to higher education, lower healthcare costs, much more likely to raise active children of their own. Like these are all things that if we can get kids and keep them active, 10, 11, 12 years old, um, these things happen. And so sport is this fundamental thing for good, plus all the character, plus all the life lessons, plus all the things that can come out of sport that are super positive. So if we um, can give more of that, that makes for a better world but we have lots of sports organizations that are just in it for the money um, that are just cash and checks that are treating kids terribly that are driving them out of sports that are injuring them. Um, and in some places, you know, committing crimes and, you know, if, you know, sexual and physical abuse. And so we can't just sign up kids for sport and assume it's going to be good. Um, we have to hold those organizations accountable for delivering good. Yeah. Yeah. For, for sure. What, what, what does a good sports program um, or, or club or organization look like, John? What, what as a parent um, uh, of two children, do, do you look for when you, or, or did you look for when they were younger, uh, trying to sign them up for sports? Well, I, I think first of all, uh, sports sampling and diversity, especially when they're younger. So are, are we getting them in a variety of things that teaches them you know, the fundamental movements, right? Functional movement, running, jumping, skipping, throwing, tracking, hopping, all these different things, right? Um, and then, but then it's being taught appropriately. The, the instructors are trained and understand children and understand how to communicate with them. 
Um, and, and this, let's face it, these things don't always exist. Um, but it doesn't mean we can't ask for them. It doesn't mean we can't push for them. And so that's what I think a good program is. But then I think a truly transformational or exceptional program also says um, we're using sport as a vehicle to teach integrity, to teach sportsmanship, to teach teamwork, to teach commitment, effort. And so we're going to weave these lessons in as well. This is going to be part of what we talk about or what our coaches talk about every day. And to me, then that goes from just transactional of like we, we teach sports skills to transformational. We develop the human being and we just use basketball as the vehicle. Yeah, we've, we've talked about that a lot, John, with concept-based learning and I don't the way the work of Julie Stern and uh, conceptualized programs are something that we've tried to take on board. I, I, I'm interested there, John, as a parent, what sort of advice then would you give to that parent wanting to find that club? What should they immediately look for as they take that child to the session? Um, I think they should look for, you know, and, and obviously this, it's a very general question, right? It's going to be different if your child is five and it's an yep. intro to football and if your child is 16 in an academy, right? So let's just, you know, in general though, um, is there a lot of movement taking place or is there a lot of lecturing taking place, right? Like no kid signs up and says, I hope we'll stand in line today, right? So so are they playing the games? Are they moving around? Are they... Uh, you know, is the coach positive and encouraging? Is he or she teaching at the right moments or, or trying to deliver these, these really long lectures and, and throw a bunch of kids a, a ton of ideas? Um, you know, is it organized? Does it look safe? You know, all, all these things. And I think depending on what you sign up for, you know, certainly here in the U.S., if you pay $60 for eight weeks of you know, fall soccer and you get a volunteer mom or dad, you're going to get what you pay for sometimes, or you might get lucky, lucky and, and, and get, you know, a really experienced coach who gets it and understands it. But that's, you know, sometimes you win the coaching lottery. Sometimes you don't. What, what I'm more concerned about are when parents pay thousands of dollars and get an inexperienced coach who is not supported by the organization to get better. Right. I, I help support a lot of coaches and um, some of them have a lot less experience than others, but we're holding their hand of what does a good session look like? Um, what is the methodology of our organization? How do we teach? How do we treat kids? How do you communicate with parents? All this sort of stuff. So, yes, they don't have experience, but we're not just like, you know, going, oh, sweet, you can do this. Here you go. And then shutting the door and hoping it all goes well 10 weeks later. Yeah, I'm, I, I love all that. And I, I've loved so much about the books that you've been in. And certainly as a parent, when, I, when I've taken my children to clubs and I look for those things and I don't find it, what, what do you then do? Do you, do, you, do you continue to allow your kids to, to take part because it's the only thing available or do you take that back seat and say, you know what, that's not right. I'm going to go and try and find something else. I mean, that's easier, right? It, it's, if, if you live in London and there's 50 choices, then maybe you go somewhere else. If you live in an isolated town and there's only one rugby club, maybe that's you say, okay, well, this is the only rugby option and this is important, but maybe I need to just keep a closer eye on it. Yeah. Right. And, and so I'd be, far more concerned as a parent of a young child if my child was being treated poorly as a human being you know that's far more concerning to me than how much rugby they learn in that moment right like i think i think great athletes you i was just reading there's a guy uh dr mark williams has a new book coming out it's out in the uk now it's not out here in the us but i got a copy of it and it's called the best and it's really sort of like the updated talent code um and and what he was talking about is um when they looked at the hours spent on on football practice of academy kids in the uk who made it you know who at 16 signed a yts contract and and got their first basically scholarship pro contract versus the ones who were released at 16 
they had the same exact amount of hours of organized practice. But the kids who made it had, on average, almost double the amount of hours of unorganized play. So I think when coaches help kids fall in love with the game and, and encourage them to go out and make up games and play on their own, that's where our truly elite athletes come from, is the time spent away from the organized time. Um, and a lot of coaches, if they make it not fun, if they make them stand in lines and run laps and don't let them scrimmage and whatever, that drives kids out of sport. So I'm looking for a kid who you know gets playing time, no matter what, when they're young, and is treated with respect. And, and, and it's a fun thing where the kids are smiling and having a great time. And my kid goes, I can't wait to do that again. Then I don't really care if we're missing out on some of the skill development at that moment. Yeah, it, yeah. you make it sound really, really simple, uh, John. And, <laughs> and, and, and in essence, it really is, isn't it? It's hooking children in and getting them to have a passion and a love and an enthusiasm for what they do in the hope and, and in the realization that if you do that, not only are you providing access during the time that they're with you, but you're also planting a seed that means that they will go and do this in their own time and want to do it. And, and that applies for, for sport amongst many, many other hobbies and interests and, and, and even academic subjects as well. What, what do yeah. coaches get wrong, John? What do they get wrong that stops that from happening? I mean, usually what they get wrong is, is this quest for outcomes really young that, I, I mean, I think that's the, that's one of the biggest thing is when kids don't get to play. Right. And, and as you were saying that, and we're talking about this, I was thinking of an incident with one of my own kids in a sort of a middle school sport where um, she was, you know, she, she was on a team. She was sort of, you know, halfway between the top team and the second team and um, wasn't, you know, so she'd play some game time with the second team, but then she'd go with the top team and um, and not, you know, and then not play at all. And I'm looking at her and another kid not getting in. And, you know, my daughter was great. Like she was a great teammate and super supportive, but I'm just seeing these kids who don't get in at all. And, and they have tears in their eyes after the game. Now, here's the thing. This was middle school sport, right, for 12-year-olds, basically, and um, the team had some good players on it. I didn't think my daughter was inappropriately placed. I didn't think she was better than these other kids. But, you know, the sport was volleyball. And they'd play three, you know, three sets all the time. And the team was very good. So oftentimes they'd win the first two sets. And, you know, so they've won the match, right? And then they'd play this short set, third set. And the coach still wouldn't put them in, right? It's like, you've already won the match. Like, you, you didn't put these kids in until, what, you know, two points left in the third set so you could sweep all three mat, you know, all three sets. Like, what are you doing? And, and so as a parent, I'm sitting there and I talk to my daughter about it and, and seeing her frustration with it and – and then at the end, it was like this extra event and they asked my daughter to go and, and the coach said, um, but we're not going to guarantee if she plays, let me know if you want to talk about it. And so I said, yeah, I do. And, and so I, I, I talked to her and I'm like, I'm not sure if you know, like what I do for a living. She's like, I have no idea. I'm like, okay, well, let me like, just kind of tell you what I do. And she was like stunned. And, and I was like, and you know, it's your choice how to coach your kid however you want. And I'll leave it up to my daughter, whether she wants to go and play or not. I'm like, but have you ever taken a moment after a match to look at two girls in tears because they didn't get in? Like, what does that make you feel like? Right? What is that? How, how do you feel about your coaching that you have kids who are in tears at the end of each match? And she, she'd never considered this before. And I don't think she changed what she did. But when I look at that, right, if I'm the higher level volleyball coach, I want as many kids playing volleyball as possible when they're young. And I'm looking at a coach driving people out of the sport because she wants to win all three sets. And to me, that's very sad. Hey, now, I, I what, fully what, agree with you. 
Fully yeah, agree. what's driving that, John? You know, there's an indication there and a suggestion. Ego. That, that, yeah, that's, that's, that's coach's ego. That's exactly it's, what I was going to say. It's ego. I mean, it's not like you're even going, going to lose. Now, now I mean... Is, is that, it, do, do you think it's a conscious thought to be ego? Or, or could this be... Um, and, and maybe this is us being kind, but could this be... Uh, a replication of, of what this coach has experienced herself in sport and what she feels is normal. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think most of us coach the way we were coached and, and there's nothing wrong as a coach with demanding high standards and saying, earn your time. Right. But how do you, how do you earn your time? Right. Earn your time to me is show up, do all the practices, take instruction, get better at stuff. And then, and then be thrown in the match to give it a shot. But how do you ever, you know, how, how do you ever um, get it? If you never get in the game, how do you ever show that you've learned and, and improved? And so this is, I think the the great challenge is, is, you know, that, that coach for whatever reason was coaching like she did and, and, and couldn't make this connection or, or wasn't looking at, these young kids as human beings, she was looking at them as volleyball players. Right. And they're just volleyball players. And then they're not human beings. And, and you know what, two of them walked away from the sport after that year because it wasn't a good situation. And then, you know, that this could open up the whole can of worms of like, well, who's good at 12? Well, it's usually the kids who were born closer to the calendar cutoff date and who grew first. That's who's good at 12, not, the late developers. And, and so th there's all these different things that, that go into it. Now, I, I just want to add in the way that I coach is that a, a, a higher level club team, a travel team, people pay to be there. I let my kids like, usually everyone plays about half a game. If we play on Saturday and you don't start, and you've been at training, you usually start on Sunday, right? So I, I let kids play in, in different situations as long as they're making all the commitments to the team. Um, and, and I think that's great. But what sometimes what then happens is kids take their time for granted. So I think it's finding this balance between earn your time and be given the opportunity to show what you've learned. I think that's the 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 art of coaching of look at a kid who just goes, well, well, I'm going to play anyway. So I'm not going to work hard at practice. And that's the kind of kid that I'll say, Hey, uh, just so you know, yeah. um, I'm going to give you games on the B team this weekend. Um, because really you, you, you've, I, I, you know, and I won't turn it into like, you're not good. I'll be like, Hey, I just want you to get your confidence up and you're, you know, you're, you're struggling a bit for minutes right now. So what you've come back to almost in a full circle there is, is the values you talked about earlier, isn't it? That if you're, if you're actually going to be in a position that you want to play, don't expect it, earn it, and understand the, the, the need for that through collaboration, through commitment, through the perseverance of, of going through our, through having a good attitude and, and showing some, some resilience when things don't go right. What, one of the things I just wanted to touch upon there is you almost talked about almost a creation line of, of a coach's ego driving decisions around their, their products, which might be their, their, their students and their players, to drive outcomes. How, how important should, should outcomes be for schools and for clubs? And, and, and we're talking there at you know, a school sport kind of level. I don't know if you guys have read uh, Joe Ehrman's work. He wrote a great book called Inside Out Coaching 10, 12, 14 years ago, something like that. And uh, Joe says he's a former a professional American football player and a great coach educator. And one thing that he says through his initiative, which has really stuck with me, and it was actually one of the chapter titles of my newest book, um, is um, that the goal of sport is to win, but the purpose is something much deeper. And I think that's a really important distinction. Of course, we want to win, especially in school sport, right? The, the goal of this game is to compete like crazy and be ahead on the scoreboard at the end. That's why we're doing this, right? But the purpose 
is something much bigger and deeper. And I think in school sport, especially the purpose of sport has to be connected to the educational mission of that school. And what I see all too often is that the values upheld by the sporting side of a school are oftentimes the antithesis of what the school is professing that they value, right? We value inclusion, except on this team, right? <laughs> we value respect, except when the coach is talking to you. Um, and, and so I, I think these are the type of things that schools need more alignment and, and they've broken this contract of like, this is why you're here, right? So, um, you know, sport, you know, should not just be extracurricular. It should be curricular. It should be part of the curriculum. And, and we're just continuing to teach. And now we're just using a physical activity to do it. Not just, not just, uh, it, you know, it not like, okay, well now it's three o'clock. And so everything that you just learned and heard all day goes right out the door. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like to come back to, to John, the, the real stuff in your books that made his impression on us was why kids play sport and the surveys you did. And, and it's just, as you've talked there, it's just come back to my memory just in abundance and just give the parents, give the audience out there. Why do kids actually play sport, John? Well, yeah. And, and there's a lot of research in this area. I mean, across the world. So this isn't, you know, John O'Sullivan making, making this up, but I, I, you know, it really comes down to joy, right? I, I you know, it's, it's joy. Um, it's, you know, being, it's, it's learning new things, you know, right. So it's like the challenge of, of learning new things. It's positive team dynamics, uh, positive coaching. These are all the things that, that, um, make kids play, you know, it's wearing the gear, getting the cool stuff to wear, being with their friends. Um, now winning, you know, winning comes way down the list of why do they play? They, they try to win, but I think anyone who's coached, especially young kids, it's like two minutes after the game, you know, it's like the only thing on their mind is like, what's for lunch, right? Like that's it, <laughs> right? They're, they're, they're the done. Thing, John. Do you think what's that's that? You think that's with parents then that are emphasizing the result more than the kids? Well, I think so. So the really interesting is a woman named Amanda Visick from George Washington University, and she's done a bunch of research in this area. And what she did is um, in this cohort that really defined what, what was fun for kids, um, what determined fun, um, she actually uh, then surveyed um, – so she, she sort of took these 81 things that kids made sports fun and she grouped them into 11 categories. And then um, she had them rank them like what's most important. Right. And, and so the, the top three categories were like trying hard. So let's call it competing uh, positive coaching and positive team dynamics. Those were the three things that made sport enjoyable for kids in her, in her research. And then so she asked um, parents, coaches, and kids to rank these things. And what she found was that um, up until about the age of 12, parents, coaches, and kids are pretty close in alignment to what made sport fun. And then at about 13, parents actually stayed pretty close to what was good for kids, but coaches diverged. Coaches started thinking that, oh, this is really important to kids when eh, it, it wasn't. And I don't know her research inside out to tell you where things fell, but I thought that was really interesting findings was, was that actually parents got it. They understood um, what was important to their kids, sometimes better than the coaches did. Uh, that's it. That's interesting. And certainly some of the behavior you see on the sidelines certainly wouldn't necessarily represent that. Um, no, but that's, I mean, I think that's a good point that that's worth exploring. Why do we behave that way? And, and this could be a coach on the sideline as well. And, and I think, you know, so there's some really interesting research. We all have probably heard of like mirror neurons, right? And so if I yawn right now, you, one of you guys is probably likely to yawn too. Um, so we, we process what others do. We mimic the, their actions, we mimic their expressions. That's what we do as human beings to fit in. 
well, that those same um, things where we mirror process, when we watch our children play, uh, the, the part of our brain that is reacting is basically we're reacting as though that foul just happened to us, right? That, that uh, bad call just happened to me, not to my child. Because all of us can go to the game before our kid is playing and watch a perfectly horrendous foul happen and not go yelling and screaming because we have no attachment to it. But as soon as it's our kid or our team, we flip. And, and so this is actually um, a, a physiological, you know, neurological thing that's happening to us um, that is, it's not a good thing or a bad thing, but I think it's something important to understand so that if I can't help but go crazy, probably what I should do is stand farther away. Right. Because the farther I am from the field, the less likely I am to coach my kid or yell at the ref for things like that. Um, so I just think I thought that was a really interesting thing I came across in the research. Yeah, right. the, I, I'm just thinking there. I'm thinking there, John, you've coached your kids and I'm, I, I've often coached my kids. How do you then flick that emotion <laughs> from the coaching and the parent role? How, how, what advice could you give there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, that that's hard. I, I think as a coach, I'm protective of my players. If there's a bad foul, regardless of whether it's my daughter or my son or someone else on the team, I don't, I don't think in that moment I, I react differently. Um, but I, you know, I, I think the, I think the hardest thing as a parent coach is to, as the coach, you absorb the emotions of the game and how your team has performed and, you know, we all coach, right? Everyone listening here, a lot of them coach, like the game doesn't end right away. We're reliving it in our head, getting ready for the next training. We move on right away to what can we learn from today so that we can get better. And it's really hard, I think, as a parent to then sit in the car after the game, especially one that was didn't go well, and just turn on your what would you like for lunch hat. Um, <laughs> and I've been very guilty of not doing that, you know, especially with my son who doesn't want to talk about it. My daughter would often bring up the game. And so she wanted to talk. And so it was great. But my son, like I find myself, like you feel it like boiling over, like I have to say this. And then, you know, you look over and they got tears in their eyes. And you're like, I'm such an idiot. Like, didn't I write a book about this? So. He's <laughs> like deja vu. We're not supposed to be perfect. <laughs> oh dear me! I, I I tell you what though, it, it's very hard, isn't it, John, to 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 be a parent and and to coach. Would would you certainly advise probably not coaching your own children? I think it's it depends, right? It's I think there's a great, beautiful thing about coaching your own children. And I think there's, it's a great, beautiful thing about stepping back and letting someone else coach them. And, you know, just, I think all kids should experience different coaches, right? So they should never have the same coach for eight or 10 or 12 years. Um, Did you hear that? Then, <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard, right? It, it's, it's yeah. hard um, when you, you know, when you know what good looks like, it's really yeah. hard to step back and watch bad happen yeah. and, and watch an organization not hold bad accountable. Right. And, and, and then if you add in unsafe, you know, and so, and so this, this is the hard thing that when you're an experienced coach or teacher and you know what a good learning environment looks like, it's really hard to take a step back and, and watch a bad one and watch your, your child getting bored with sport. And this is just like innocuous, like they're not having fun and they're bored and they, they want to quit. Um, that's innocuous, right? Never mind no way I sit back and watch a dangerous environment occur. So, yeah. so that's hard, but I think stepping away is an important thing because your child also shouldn't have to be the coach's kid, his or her whole life, because it's a different role. Mm. It's a different role. What, what can parents do John to, to best support their, their child, best support their relationship with their child and, and, and best support the coach in a sporting context? Well, I think recognizing, you know, most of us, I think 
teach our kids to listen to adults and respect authority and things like that. And so number one, if you disagree with what's happening with the coach, um, don't get stuck. Like don't, don't have a talk with your spouse about the bad coach in front of your kid, because now you're, you're cutting out the trust that your kid has in their coach. Right. Um, Number two, when your son or daughter is struggling in the moment of like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. And if you're looking at it and saying, okay, this is just a difficult time, but it's not dangerous, right? My child's not being abused or bullied or something. Then it's a great opportunity to say, hey, you made a commitment, you know, fulfill your commitment to this team. Um, this is what you've chosen to do. And when it's over, we won't sign you up for basketball again or football again or whatever it is, but you know, fulfill your commitment and, 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 and work hard. Um, and what did you learn from this? And so I, I think these are the things, what I look for in sport with my own kids is engagement, right? And, and is, and that means like, do they come home and grab a ball and go back out to the backyard, right? Or do they, without being told to, without being asked, um, or, you know, hit a volleyball against the wall or grab the tennis ball and go hit it against the wall. I, you know, all these things, that's engagement. And I think when you see engagement in your child, you know, something, something, something's clicking there, right? The fire is, is, is being fanned and that's what you're really looking for. Um, but I, you know, I get parents who ask me like, oh, my kid, you know, what do you think? Is he going to make it? And I'm like, does he pick up a ball outside of practice ever? Well, no then no, he's probably not because there's no love and passion for the sport. And that's okay. This sport should have a place for that kid who just wants to show up to practice and play, but that's not an, uh, an elite sporting path by any means. Yeah. That, that, that child that, that wants to turn up and play and, and join practices is probably representative of 99% of the children that we coach. Right. So totally. you, you do get, you do get that, that 1% and that less than 1% that, that are gifted, um, that, that do have um, a huge commitment to sport, that do play in their own time, that, that have the right context and surroundings and, and, and situation around them to, to really push on. Now, what, what advice to, to parents would you give to those children? How far is pushing too far and, and, and how much is, is not supporting enough? that's I think one of the hardest things about being a parent because there is no that's very gray right and sometimes you're going to push too far and sometimes you won't push enough because if you look at any professional athletes or Olympic athletes journey they'll talk about those moments of struggle where a coach or a parent gave them that little positive nudge that kept them in it without that nudge maybe they walk away after that injury. Maybe they walk away after that disappointment. So, um, you know, but pushing too hard too often will also lead them to quit because then what happens is they lose ownership of the experience. Now that parent is pushing the kid towards their goals and not the child's goals. And I don't know that there's any research. I mean, there's a little bit of research on this in that, and I forget, I think it came out of like the Netherlands or something where they talked about um, parents who, who live vicariously through their kids are much more likely to have unfulfilled sporting dreams of their own. So the parent who says, I could have made it if only this, if only that, are far more likely to push and push and push and push and never stop and ask their son or ask their daughter, hey, do you actually want to do this or is this just me? And when they're really young, of course, they'll comply. But at 13, 14, they start pushing back and they want to be with their friends or they want to try something else. Um, so I've had the opportunity to coach the kids of some incredibly high level, high level athletes, Olympians and professional players and things like that. And, and in my experience, those parents um, are sometimes the least pushy because they, um, they've, they know how hard it is to be really good at something. And they know that it's not going to happen if the kids, um, it's not going to happen if the kids don't love it. Right. They know how much they sacrificed to play in the NFL 
and they're not going to expect that same sacrifice of, of their, of their own kid. Right. I heard Robin Von Persie talking about this on an interview the other day. I don't know if you guys saw that, but he was like, my job as a parent is not to make you a great football player. My job is to make you a good person. If you want to be a great footballer, that's on you. Yeah. yeah. I like, I, I love that idea of ownership. It's so simple. Um, but but can be taken away so easily by, by coaches and parents that are, are twisting arms a little bit too often and tapping shoulders a, a little bit too frequently to get numbers out, to get sports represented, to get kids pushing towards that that phrase that's a really interesting one and probably a podcast in itself of sporting potential and that idea of, of, of is there a potential and, and are we actually just trying to help children pursue what they want to do or, or should we have a a barometer of what they're capable of and push them towards it. Or, or what are, what are the factors that we're using to say, Oh, that kid has potential and that one doesn't, you know, usually it's, um, Oh, look how big, strong and fast she is. Right. And, but she's done growing at 12. Right. So oftentimes potential is just the person of what I can see in this moment. And there is a lot of research happening of what are the psychological characteristics that might determine excellence, right? Dave Collins and Anya McNamara in the UK have done this and Joe Baker in Canada are doing all this research on like, what are the character traits that are predictors of excellence, much more so than just what we see in front of us right now, um, which is oftentimes, you know, we confuse maturity for, <laughs> for talent, mm. physical maturity. Mm. Yeah, without a doubt. What just just a, a last one from me, really, John, on, on this kind of subject is is where does that line get drawn with um, ever increasing school programs and, and and good and strong school programs, and the conflict that that might have with local clubs that might have a very different agenda. Um, so, so I'm sure we've all coached students in the past that will have affiliations with clubs outside schools, which is great and and for me really healthy that they're. They're going and getting coaching from other people. And they're also getting the opportunity to socialize with other children and, and be shown maybe a different angle in the sport. From a school point of view, obviously, which is where we're coming in from, how, how do you best support those students in, in, and, and those parents as well in ensuring that the, the, the visions and the, the purpose of those clubs are in line with, as a school, what you know to be right and well-researched and balanced for children? sometimes they're skewed, right? Very much so. And I've worked with numerous international schools in, I don't know how many countries now. And it always really depends. It's, it's always usually a combination of um, the, the local culture, right? So how is sport viewed within the local culture? And then also how is sport viewed within the culture of that school, and what I mean by that is a British school might view it differently than an American school uh, might view it differently yeah. than in a, you know, I, I've been in Singapore and when I was in Singapore, a lot of the schools, you know, like, Oh, we get no fans at any games. Uh, but when you go to the American school, all the parents come, but we can't get any parents to come. Right. So there's like these different cultures at, at, mm -hmm. at play. I think as a coach, if my, goal is to serve the human being in front of me, then my goal is to, is to learn what he or she is doing and, and try to give them the best experience possible, which oftentimes means if I'm the school coach, how can I coordinate and work with that club so that this kid gets the best possible experience in sport? Um, if I'm the club coach, can I coordinate with the school's coach to say, hey, we have these things coming up. I know you have your thing. How can we make this work for the benefit of this kid? Because what happens is when the two coaches don't work together, all of a sudden the kid's trying to please two masters, if you will, and then they get injured, then they get burned out, right? They're at your training. You think they're not working hard, but they're exhausted. They're at the club training and it's their third session of the day. And, and this is where we run into trouble. And then the kids don't get any rest. They don't recover. Um, they never go hard enough. They never get recovery days. And so I, I think it's, it's coordination. Um, you know, one of the big 
here in the United States, um, about 10 years ago, the, the top sort of football or soccer youth league said kids can no longer play for their schools anymore. And there was a lot of pushback uh, against that. And I think rightly so, because schools give kids a different experience than that, that club experience. Um, the problem was in the United States, there's certain parts of the country where the school's football was really good, right? And there's other parts where the school's football is very poor. And, you know, we, we, and so we made this blanket one size fits all thing, which I thought was very short sighted. And there's now kind of a pushback against it because kids benefit a lot from their school's programming. Um, and they get a different role, right? If you're truly in sort of an academy, a uh, part of a professional club's youth setup, you might be the 16th best player on that team. But then you could go to your school and be the best kid or the second best. That's a very different role. And then maybe you're good enough to play up three years. And so you're playing against bigger, faster, older kids. And now you have a leadership role and now you're taking set pieces and all this. So I look at that and say, why are we saying that's not good for the development of that child? And we all know all the evidence says it is. And so, you know, it's hard in a giant country like the U.S., you know, so many climates and different geography and different weather and, and all that. And I hate when we make blanket things because what works in Florida doesn't necessarily work in Minnesota that being a Southern state and a Northern state for people who aren't familiar with the geographically challenged with the geographically <laughs> challenged. I'm, I'm going to give you a real big up here, John, and you, you might like this is that seven, eight years ago when myself and Lewis took over in uh, at British school Manila, and we looked at a very elite program that only serviced the best kids. We actually read your book. We read Changing the Game Project when it first came out. We looked at the website, all the resources. We listened. And, and we took on board everything that you said. We, we introduced a, an inclusive policy. We, we, we had a multi-sport approach. And, and we tried to deliver equal game time where possible. And, and certainly eight years down the line, we've, we've come out and we did that. And, and I can honestly say it works. And... The kids that leave on international uh, rotations after two years, it could be a best two players leave. You have then a stock of kids coming through that continue to replace them. So the message there is, is that unbelievable work that you're doing. And just through that little bit of CPD changed a whole course of a school's life. So I, I just want to thank you very much for that. Um, yeah, can, I just, through, uh, can I just jump in? Because I thank you for that, first of all. And, and, and the challenge that is you can only see the results years later. Oh, yeah, so if we're yeah, looking yeah. for two month slices, you won't see the result of that. Yeah. Um, and so, and so kudos to you guys for having the courage and the political will to fight the battle. And then you go, well, of course we're doing this. This totally makes sense. This is like the switch to small sided games in many sports or things like that. But it was interesting in my local club here a couple of years ago, you know, I took on my daughter's team and I said, if you want me to coach, like I want the whole age group. My daughter was on the B team and I said, give me the whole age group. Um, I'll coach the A's and the B's and um, make sure that they all develop. And we're going to catch kids up and we're going to have seamless integration between teams and kids who can attend both training sessions and all that. Well, now here five years later, um, in that there's one team left, there is attrition, right? But of the 16 kids who were on the A team, six of them were on the B team back then. Yeah. But then the, this organization has other age groups where the B team kids all quit. The A team kids had attrition and there's no one to move through. So guess what? There's no more team. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're exactly right. Yeah. You're exactly right. And in schools, we have a responsibility to to ensure participation on all kids. And I think it's worth exactly. remembering that in schools. Yeah. Um, and it comes it comes back to education, John, and, and wanting to learn. And and we did that. And, and I know you're an avid reader. So what what book are you reading at the moment? 
Oh, I think I just mentioned it. Mark Williams' new book, The Best. Yeah. It's called The Best. Um, and I, I don't remember what the subtitle is uh, at this point, but it's basically like an updated version of the talent code, how, how, how the truly best become that way. Um, and I'm probably about uh, a third of the way through it. And it's excellent. It's really, really good. Um, and I know it's out in the UK right now, uh, but it's not out here in, in North America yet. And I'm going to grab Mark for my podcast here pretty soon. But uh, that one, um, you know, I get a lot of books for people that um, are going to be on the podcast. I'd say during this sort of quarantine, two books that were super influential for me, um, Nick Winkleman's The Language of Coaching, uh, fantastic book all about cueing. And so you got it over there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, great. I thought it was really, it was really interesting, right? Like it makes you think brilliant. about your language. Um, and then, brilliant. brilliant book. And then uh, Stephen Rolnick's Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best, um, okay. all about motivational interviewing. So, so I spent a lot of time on how we communicate and how we talk and how we impart information. But also, you know, what Rolnick's book is about is how do we as coaches get athletes to see the solutions themselves through the way that we talk to them rather than just being what he calls deficit detectives um, or, or just spitting <laughs> the answers at them, you know? So the, the, those would be three that I um, will make my list of the must read books of the year. Yeah. I, lockdown was brilliant for reading. I'm still working my way through the big, the big list, but yeah, there's, there's some, there's some really good reading there. Thanks, John. Uh, this is one of my favorite ones who, which three leaders in history would you love to go out for a meal with? <laughs> These questions always get me because, because that, um, that kind of changes, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I, I'd, I'd love, I'd love to invite, um, you know, from a, a sporting perspective, um, like an Alex Ferguson, um, I, I think he's just a fascinating uh, character um, who understands leadership and, and would tell some great stories. He's a big fisherman. So Sir Alex, if you're listening, uh, happy to take you fly fishing um, and talk about that. Um, you, you know, ah, man, I don't, I don't know. It's so, it's so hard to say. I I've, I've had the certain people, certain leaders have this uh, aura about them or this presence about them when they're, when they're in a room um, and you're in a small place with them and you kind of meet them and you're like, wow, like this is, this is interesting. Um, I, I, I met Billie Jean King, the tennis uh yeah. woman she's fascinating like that i love to you know and she's funny and and she's you know like she, she's a just a great great thinker so these, these are i'm throwing sports people and and obviously there should be some some other you know some some yeah, other people yeah, as well out there um you know yeah i have a degree in history so i could name numerous you know world leaders that have fascinated me as well um um yeah, I mean, I, I got to you know do this little in small room with Michelle Obama. She was a really interesting person as well. I thought that was cool. I don't know that she'll make my list just yet, but we'll see. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. She's generally on the uh, our female guests tend to choose. Yeah, Michelle. very popular Michelle Obama, and quite yeah, rightly she was too. cool. You know who like you know who's an interesting one like Oprah. You guys know Oprah. Yeah, Oprah Winfrey, just because she's talked and interviewed so many fascinating people i'd love yeah. to like you know you know sit down with her and like who's the most interesting person you've met and what was it and you know so uh i don't know there there's 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 so many yeah well, thanks great. john I, I've, <laughs> a, I've got one last one for you some months ago during lockdown um Alan and I started to, to write down the kind of thing that we've, we've been trying to move towards for a while. And this idea of infinite learning, uh, of really trying to continue to be better, whether in, in leadership, in coaching, it, regardless, uh, to, to be better educated and to be better people to be around. And, and we recognize that that's, a, that's something that you'll, you'll, you'll never achieve and, and you'll always be learning and, and hence that word infinite. What, what does infinite learning mean to you and, and, and what do you think makes an infinite leader? 
Well, I, I definitely think that as you guys said, and as you guys promote this, this curiosity that there's something else out there that I don't have all the answers is so critical. And it's critical twofold because number one, there is someone out there thinking about it differently than you. So you, you want to find that out. And number two, when you're a curious learner, it consistently reminds you, I think what it's like to be your young athletes, right? Like your kids who are learning something new every day. Um, what, you know, it's, it, it constantly reminds you what it's like to not know something and then, and then learn it. So I think it's a really important reminder of who's in front of me, which makes you a better coach, which makes you a better um, teacher. And I think the, the second thing, and I think this is one of the big challenges of, of lockdown, is that infinite learning needs to be combined with strategic application. There's a lot of people right now who added like seven new tool, toolboxes worth of stuff, and they don't know what to do with it. So sitting in a billion webinars or listening to those podcasts or whatever, you know, having all that information doesn't really mean much if you don't know how to apply it. And so I think that strategic application of little pieces and say, hey, I, you know, language of coaching, right? How I queue up when I'm teaching, um, what's the last thought I want to put in a player's head, right? I'm not trying to add in 300 pages of Nick's work into my work. I'm trying to add one concept and see if that works, see if that makes a difference. Um, so I, I think it's not just about learning. It's about what can I apply? And if you're curious and you're listening to this podcast or others, then you probably have a lot of information and it's just how do I layer on 10% and see if that works a little bit better. And I, I think that's one of the things that, um, I think right now there's a lot of people with a lot of information and they don't know what to do with it. So my advice is like, go, go try something, see if it works. And if it doesn't, then don't use it again. And uh, if it does, great, add it to your toolbox. I like the idea of, of, of needing some direction. And that, that almost brings us back to the, the whole idea um, behind what we did, which was, was really for people to try and pursue their purpose and, and, and the why for what they do. Uh, and, and I think having that kind of purpose is, is only going to support that journey. So you can be purposeful with the learning that, mm -hmm. that you have along the way. Mm -hmm. um, John, thanks very much for coming on. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, really insightful. And, and, and you're a guy that, as Alan alluded to earlier, we really wanted to speak to for a long time. So I really, really appreciate your, your time and, and the energies you've put into our conversation. Uh, would you like to tell the viewers a little bit about your, your own podcast? I know that's very popular and I've listened to that myself. It's quality. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so it's called Way of Champions. Uh, my friend, Dr. Jerry Lynch and I sometimes co-hosted. Um, I, I host all the episodes. Sometimes Jerry joins me, sometimes doesn't. Way of Champions is Jerry's sports psychology business. And we built the podcast around it because um, that idea, because we run this, you know, three-day coaching conference together under the same name. And um, yeah, so we're 100 and uh, we're getting close to 190 straight weeks. We've managed to release an episode here, which wow. is pretty cool. Um, and, uh, and getting close to like a million downloads. Uh, I think we'll crack that here in the next couple of weeks. So that's pretty cool uh, right now that you're just, that there's that many people listening. And, and what I love about the podcast is people find it and then they just take the deep dive back. They go backwards and, and they, and they just binge listen. So I get these people who are like, all right, three weeks I've listened to four a day. What should I listen to next? And so, uh, so that, so that's been, that's been cool. And then just, uh, you know, my website is changing the game .com And you know, you can find all the books on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, or I know if you're international book depository is a great one because they do free international shipping. So, um, good places to find books as well. Brilliant. Thanks, John. And for all our listeners, it's well worth a listen and well worth a, a read of, of John's material and his writing. Very thoughtful, very insightful and, and incredibly reflective and based on, on real life experience. So again, thanks, John. Really appreciate that. Um, guys, yeah, please search you. Infinite Leaders live on, on YouTube, IGTV and, and podcast, uh, podcast platforms. You can find us on all of those now. And, and remember to 
to go and look at the infinitelearners.com um, and for our up-to-date articles and, and different bits and bobs you can find on there. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. As I said at the top of the program, we are interested in your feedback and we do practice what we preach. Uh, so please get in touch with us. Twitter is usually the best bet and you can find me and Alan on there. And also John, uh, we're avid followers of John and, and the things that he writes. So John, thanks very much again. Uh, and we'll see everybody next time. Cheers, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, John. Have you stopped recording?